And now, live, it's time. Which team, by colors alone, is identifiable around the world? It's time for the JT The Brick Show. Which team, by slogan, commitment to excellence? On Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. Just win, baby. All those things are the Raiders. Here's your host, JT The Brick. JT, back with you. Hour number two on Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. Brought to you by our great friends at Modelo. The fighting spirit. You know I drink a bucket of Modelo's every Friday. Modelo, the official beer of the JT The Brick Show. Have a few Modelo's with my dad and my mom. I'm heading to Florida on Thursday for a while to go see my parents who I haven't seen in a while. 83 and 81 years old. That is a priority in my life in Raider offseason. So I'm going to get away here for a little bit. we got a couple of more shows coming up here, and then I'll be back a week after Monday. And we'll dive into what will be one of the busiest runs I can remember. And I say that often with the Raiders. There's always excitement in the offseason. There's always big storylines coming every offseason. There's free agency. There's trades. There's coaching changes. This is really the perfect storm. So much has happened right now as we take a look at the future of the Raiders. The schedule, playing in Canton, Ohio. Uh, What are they going to do with the quarterback in regards to a contract extension? Do they have the chance to go out and get Devontae Adams or another big high, high-flying high wide receiver? What are they going to do on the defensive side of the ball? All of this combined is really important. And I think the Raiders are going to be in a really good spot now to jump and make some noise. But they might not. It might be a situation where they the, the Raiders look at the situation and say, we're going to do it differently now, the way the Patriots did this in the past. And how did the Patriots do this in the past? They went about it with a structure, and they stuck with the structure. And we know that Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels is really tight, and there's coaches now on this staff in Las Vegas that were in New England, and they do it a certain way. They value a position group, tight ends, offensive line, linebackers. They put a value on that entire group more so than a value on an individual player. Now, I will say this. It's a nice luxury to have when you're in New England and you have Tom Brady. When you have Tom Brady and then you sit and you look at the value of your cornerbacks or your tight ends, it's a little bit different. You got Tom Brady. And Brady can get these guys to the next level. But what I believe, because I've been on the radio throughout the entire Patriots dynasty, and much of it I've been on, much of it I've been on uh, during their heyday, during their heyday, I'm looking at this situation now saying, I wonder what they're going to do. Are they going to do it the Patriot way, or are they going to do it with a little bit of a twist than the Patriot way, where they're going to do it the Patriot way with the fundamentals that they had, or are they going to jump in and go crazy in free agency? Don't know. Nobody knows. Vic doesn't know. You know, Paul Gutierrez doesn't know. Vinny doesn't know. We're all assuming that there's going to be a mixture. Because when you look at Josh McDaniels, he's getting away from Bill Belichick now. Bill Belichick had all the control. He was the GM, the head coach of the team. And he did it his way. But I think what's great about Belichick, he's a great delegator because his coaches were very successful underneath him. And then when the coaches leave and they go somewhere else, they try to bring that Patriot way. And then they try to do it on their own, but they normally do it with bad teams. They do it with really bad teams. The Detroit Lions. You know, just go look at the list of the coaches that have left and gone to bad teams. You know, Joe Judge recently with the Giants, who are a train wreck. 
So with all of that happening, all that happening, now we wonder what Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler are going to do. And I think it's going to be very important for them to come in with a plan that is a little bit aggressive but sticks to their fundamentals, which should be fun to watch because we don't know. I had a pretty good understanding and a great relationship with John Gruden. I kind of knew what he was going to do. I'm not saying I knew everything. He didn't tell me. He didn't call me on the phone and say, I'm going to pick this player or not. But I understood what his philosophy was when he took over the Raiders. And it was simply to build an organization where he had most of the power as the head coach. He had the final decision on personnel. He would be an on-hands coach where he would he'd be dominating the room as a coach. And he would try to do it with the principles like Belichick did. But then they were going to try to go out and do it a little bit differently. They were going to try to do it a little bit differently because they needed a matchup with Kansas City. See, that was part of the Gruden plan. How do the Raiders do it that way the Patriots are doing, and then they're going to find a way to do it and match up with Kansas City? And it looked like the Raiders were on a pretty good track of doing that until they ran into Kansas City last year and they ran into a buzzsaw. They ran into an absolute buzzsaw with Kansas City. The year before, they almost swept them. And last year, they got annihilated from Kansas City in two games. So Josh McDaniels has taken over a 10-win team that was not competitive against Kansas City, who is clearly the best team out there. Now, the good news for the Raiders is they swept Denver two years in a row with John Gruden and Rich Passaccia. And they, they play pretty evenly with the Chargers. And they eliminated the Chargers from the playoffs. And you hear the same noise all around all the time now. The same noise all around that Denver and the Chargers have a better roster than the Raiders. They have better players than the Raiders. All they need is this player, and they'll be going to the Super Bowl. I call BS on that every year. But if Denver's able to get Aaron Rodgers, there's a problem. Because Aaron Rodgers will trip over 10 wins getting out of bed. He'll trip over 10 wins getting out of bed. And Justin Herbert is one of the best quarterbacks I've seen in my entire career. 25 years on the radio. It's one of the best quarterbacks I've ever seen. Doesn't mean you can't beat them. They don't have a great team all the time. But Justin Herbert's going to win a lot of games. So this is a big offseason, and we'll see how this plays out for the Raiders. I am very confident that Dave Ziegler and Josh McDaniels have a firm plan in place, a really firm plan in place that is going to give them a couple of free agents, maybe a trade, along with the philosophy in the draft that can keep the Raiders on track and build on 10 wins going forward. And that's what their legacy is going to be. How long can they? How long is it going to take to win? And how long can they stay at the top? What did I tell you about this book, Nace Myth, Basketball Stolen Legacy? One of my good friends, Scott Flansburg, the human calculator, owns the Herkimer Originals. He's one of my best friends. And he told me about this investigative story and two of the authors, and we have one of them on right now. Judge Fosty joins us with the book, Smith Basketball Stolen Legacy. And did basketball really start with James Naismith in Springfield, Mass., in 1891? Or is that a myth and a fraud? George, thanks for joining us. I'm excited to talk to you. How are you? Well, good. Good. Thank you for having uh, myself. My brother should be joining us any second. Uh, yeah, having us on your show today. Yeah, it's... Uh... You know, we, uh, uh, we've raised some serious questions as to the origins of basketball. We spent uh, 17 months working with another writer by the name of Brian Carroll. Mm-hmm. 
uh, investigating the history and origins of basketball. But uh, it started uh, over 10 years ago. We, we'd seen a photo of a basketball team that had predated the claims of Naismith. And we, and we asked the simple question, how is it possible that you could have a basketball team that predates the invention of basketball? And uh, we went down and we started to look at that. And over the years, we uh, we just quietly put together some information. And 17 months ago, we were uh, approached by Scott, who had read about uh, one of our articles where we questioned the origins of basketball, and asked us, uh, you know, uh, would we, you know, uh, do our research onto this and uh, see if we could, uh, you know, prove once and for all there was a um, that uh, basketball actually uh, was invented prior to Naismith's claims, and, and that's the purpose of this book to look into the mm-hmm. early history of basketball to see, in fact, uh, if uh, he, if James Naismith actually did invent basketball, which we uh, concluded he had not. All right, let me bring in your brother, Daryl. And, Daryl, this goes, comes down to Springfield, Mass., or Herkimer, New York. And I went to college in upstate New York, and as we welcome you in, the forensic work you did, the work you did behind the scenes, the interviews, uh, did a 16-year-old volunteer at the YMCA in Herkimer, really invent basketball? What does your evidence show? Well, you have to look at just the the narratives of the two men. You have one that that in Lambert McWill that has uh, talks about the evolution of how that game came about, from throwing cabbages to putting a basket on top of a stepladder to working out the rules over time, and play, and then he continued to play the game, uh, you know, for years afterwards. Versus a man that played the game only two times, and then wasn't even invited on the rules committees uh, afterwards to uh, to standardize the rules as the game evolved. So, just in that narrative alone, how does a man like Naismith not get invited? Uh, because clearly, people knew at the time. He had no input that was worthy. So, whereas Lambert Will he talks about uh, how they, uh, why they brought in the, the hoop, you know, his mother netted the, 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 the mesh around the net. Uh, all of this stuff points towards Lambert Will being the, uh, the actual catalyst of the, and inventor of the mm-hmm. game. Okay, we're talking to the Fosty Brothers, the book, Nace Myth, Basketball Stolen Legacy. My buddy Scott Flansberg, one of my best friends, is behind this, the human calculator, one of the fastest, the fastest math mind in the world. Uh, this is a special project dear to him. So how about the money and the reputation behind James Naismith? Once he took credit for inventing basketball, everybody took his word on it, and now the Basketball Hall of Fame's in Springfield, Mass., everybody, all the legends that played before, we all grew up thinking that Naismith was the inventor of basketball. How did he pull this off? What was part of his marketing plan, George, going forward? Well, you know, what happened was they uh – Jay, uh, Lambert Will was was uh, an, an assistant uh, director at uh, at the Herkimer YMCA. He had sent letters to Springfield, uh, you know, describing the game. And uh, Naismith was the editor of the Triangle Magazine, oh, a newsletter wow. in Springfield. And when they put the rules out, they put Naismith's name down on the bottom. And when they asked him, you know, how did you invent this amazing game? He said, oh, I invented it in 45 minutes in my office. It just all came to me. And uh, 
you know, I mean, it was uh, it's, it was one of the most ridiculous uh, claims ever. And then on top of that, but because because the Triangle newsletter went out to ten thousand different uh, uh, you know groups around the country, they just immediately you know through name recognition gave him credit, and he never denied it. And then beyond that, once it took off. Well, there he goes, right? He's uh, he's going to be credited for the next 130 years. Meanwhile, the the kid that invents the game, where does he go? He goes and joins the, the military. He spent some time, uh, yeah, putting upstate New York uh, during the Spanish-American War in the military. Goes on and becomes a printer, and everybody forgets about him and, until 1940, when they hold a reunion in uh, in Little Falls, New York, and uh, they bring together all the guys that were playing in 1890, 1891. On the 50th anniversary of basketball, this is prior to the release of Naismith's basketball book after his death. This is prior to the debate on the origins of basketball in the 1950s. They're holding a reunion in Little mm-hmm. Falls to mark 50 years of basketball right. in that area. So it's a, it's just a crazy story. Uh, the, the research we did to try to identify this, aside from you looking for the old newsletters, looking for the old newspapers, looking for photographic evidence, trying to, we even brought in a photo analysis uh, to uh, investigate the photos that were questioned. Uh, we, uh, we looked at the 1950s debate on basketball. We looked at uh, all the writings of all, all the leading basketball historians over 100 years. We looked at everything. We even looked at uh, the University of Kansas archives uh, where we found a lot of contradictory mm-hmm victory information on Naismith. Uh, so this is, uh, like I said, we, we, we shook every, every branch on every tree. Sounds to, like it. To come uh, up with this. But uh, it's, uh, it's definitely one of the more disturbing stories because for 130 years you've got a guy credited that doesn't deserve to be credited. Well, sure. and to add to that, he, Naismith never, you, you can't find two accounts that, that match of how he invented the game. It, it constantly changed throughout the years. So what's at stake here, gentlemen, with the book? The book is fantastic, Basketball Stolen Legacy, Nace Myth. And it seems like you're got, you guys are framing this as James Naismith was a fraud. He was a basketball crook. He pulled off the biggest basketball hoax of all time, the invention of the game. The family must have profited from this. Springfield Mass has profited from this in the hundreds of millions of dollars with the Hall of Fame and the development. And good old Herkimer, New York, where I've been there a few times, should be credited for all of this. They should have the Basketball Hall of Fame. No, we agree. I mean, and and what we did was we did something when we wrote this book, we, like I said, we looked at every source. We went into every archive uh, that we could find. Uh, we spent 17 months going through this, and we, and we were, um, our previous background, the, the people, your, your viewers don't, uh, you know, your listeners don't know, is that we wrote the book Black Ice, The Lost History of the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes. We spent seven years rebuilding the history of the Colored Hockey League, and when we released that book in 2004, we were said the people said to us that league never existed. Well, now it's a cornerstone of Canadian hockey history, and Black Ice is considered a landmark book. And we took the skills that we learned rebuilding the history of the Colored Hockey League, and we put that into researching this history of Naismith basketball. And uh, and what happened was at the end of the day, you know, like I said, we covered everything, mm-hmm. we footnoted everything because we knew if we made one single mistake made one claim that we could not prove, they would discredit the whole book. Because this is what's happened for 130 years. 
whenever somebody stood up and said, hey, I don't think Naismith invented basketball, they were immediately discredited. They would sure. knock down their, their claims because they were taking them on one argument at a time. We've got 40, 50 different arguments going on in this book, and we, and we piece it all together. And that was the, uh, that was the uh, you know, that's the problem the critics are going to have because we footnoted it. Right, you did your work on this. We're talking to the Fosty brothers as we wrap it up. Their new book out is a big deal. On the birthplace of basketball, they see fraud with James Naismith, and they want to bring this back and correct the story. Daryl, let me wrap it up with you. What's the hook to the book? Give me something in the book that you believe will change everyone. Everybody who reads the book, everybody who talks about the NBA, Adam Silver will have to talk about this in a press conference down the road to correct this story. Well, first off, you have uh, photographic evidence that has been analyzed. A lot of money was spent on analyzing the, 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 the picture of the uh, 19, uh, uh, 1891 team. And uh, on top of that, you, you add on the, the newspaper accounts. So we have primary evidence. You know, this isn't speculation. We have primary evidence. You have to, if you're going to try to take down our claims, you're going to have to take down primary evidence. So uh, we'll see what happens. But I, I believe that that it's 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 the research itself speaks for itself sure. right absolutely george one more follow-up with about a minute to go sure. what can come out of this what can we what what correction would you like to see in the next two three four years with all your accurate information on the birthplace of basketball being moved to herkimer new york well i, I tell you uh, what we saw when we did the research we saw something that we describe in our book as the basketball road it was a it was a series of about ten or twelve little communities running from New Rochelle all the way down to Scranton, Pennsylvania, who were the forefront of the development of basketball. And eleven of those communities never received any credit for their participation in the evolution of basketball. And we feel like this basketball road would reinvigorate basketball. Uh, Springfield was one of those communities, but they got credit for everything. The other guys got no credit at all. And we think that in, if you, we're talking about urban renewal and a renewal of America, you've got a, a, a basketball equivalent of a Route 66 where you could get in the car and drive from Scranton all the way to New Rochelle, New York, and you could discover the history of basketball through those communities that have been mis, you know, uh, misrepresented over 100 years. And what's amazing is when you go into some of those towns, there's the basketball story still there. They didn't tear down the buildings. They're still right. sitting there. Just nobody knows what they were. So there's a whole new area of historic rediscovery in basketball that can be achieved. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll promote the book. Tell everyone to buy it at Amazon.com. Scott's like a brother to me, and his resources funding with the ABA, with Alice Cooper, the great rock legend, with what you guys are doing. This is a big story. Everybody's going to be talking about it, and I'm happy we're one of the first to interview you guys. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very uh, thank much. You appreciate it. You got it. The Fosty Brothers. Nace Myth, Basketball Stolen Legacy. I appreciate everybody listening to that because it is a big story. They are claiming that James Naismith, who claimed to invent basketball, was a fraud. He took the notes of this young 16-year-old in Herkimer, New York, stole the vision of basketball, had no idea of it, and took all the credit for it. And in turn, built a multi-multi-multi-billion-dollar sport, a game called basketball, and he gets all the credit for discovering it. It's a fraud.
according to those forensic reporters who put a lot of work in on this. Coming up next, we'll talk to Pete Bukowski, who's the co-founder and the host of the Lock On Packers podcast, on all the updates with Devontae Adams. I wanted to get him on. Here, very important to figure out what's going to happen here. And there is breaking news. Major League Baseball, the union, the players agreed unanimously not to accept the owner's final offer. We got a lockout, everybody. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. You know, I don't want to, it's not about being a baby, but what other profession do you, you know, take less than what you have earned? You know, it's not, that's not how it goes. And, you know, the fans may see it different in certain ways. And I'm sure there's a lot of fans that see it the same way that myself, my family, my agent, and, you know, most of the league sees it. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a baby, so I'm not, I'm not going to not show up and I'm not complaining about it. At the end of the day, I'm not poor right now. You know, I'll be, I'll be okay to get through and, um, you know, go try to win a Super Bowl again. And that's that's my main focus now. Devontae Adams, JT, back with you. So there is a lockout in baseball. That is breaking news. But let's stay with the Packers and what's going on with Aaron Rodgers and especially Devontae Adams. Peter Bukowski joins us, co-founder of The Leap, host of the Lock On Packers podcast, and he was kind enough to join us. And, Peter, this is an exciting time for you. Once again, the Packers are the biggest of the biggest stories of the offseason with the Aaron Rodgers contract and if Devontae Adams is going to get tagged or not. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Exciting is one way to put it. Uh, after last offseason, I was kind of looking forward to something a little bit more uh, relaxing, but um, here we are. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about. What do you think is the big difference with your offseason last year when Aaron Rodgers went on the yoga cleanse? He was in love. People didn't know if he was coming back. We knew that with Guttenkunst, they weren't getting along. That was obvious. What's changed so much, even though he didn't win a playoff game, where he could be in a better place mentally to want to have a good negotiation and do a fair deal with Green Bay? Well, what, what we've been told is that the, the conversations with, with Brian Guttenkunst, with Matt LaFleur, that those have been good and that they have been productive. And I, I thought it was really interesting when, when Aaron Rodgers went on Pat McAfee's show a week ago, he mentioned a conversation that he had with Brian, it might have been two, eh, last week, uh, with Brian Gutekind on the first day that Rodgers came back to training camp. Remember, he, he gives this epic press conference, this 40-minute press conference. He opens it with this, like, nine-minute monologue, the airing of grievances, and Brian Gutekind on day one comes over and has a conversation with Aaron Rodgers. Rodgers compared that conversation, Gudekinst reaching out, the olive branch, uh, to a handshake that Rodgers had with Brett Favre when the Packer fan base and the organization were not in a good place with Brett Favre. There was still a lot of acrimony. Um, the fans were really mad at, at Brett with the way he handled um, leaving, the way that he went to Minnesota, the way that he seemed to relish beating Green Bay. There were a lot of Packer fans who were like, you know, forget this guy and that the handshake when Aaron Rodgers is at the peak of his popularity with Brett and their relationship was not always the rosiest, Mm -hmm. signaled a change in how Brett Favre was being treated inside the organization and with fans. For him to to compare those two things 
essentially says there was a reconciliation, a, a full reconciliation, a, a come-to-Jesus moment. Maybe that's why he has the long hair. And that, that, that they were able to move forward amicably. The, the, every report that you hear and everything that you hear from both the Green Bay Packers um, and Aaron Rodgers say that this relationship was mended, I, I think, because Rodgers got what he wanted, which was a say and, a, and an open line of communication to the decision makers. Peter Bukowski is our guest, Packers insider. So you tweeted out a two-year deal for Aaron Rodgers would mean reworking some contracts next offseason, too. The Packers typically don't want to have the highest-paid player in the league, let alone the highest-paid player of all time, on a short-term deal just for cap purposes, having a player taking all the money when guys like Tom Brady historically have taken less. And then we got to switch to Devontae Adams, where they could tag him, and eventually there's got to be money coming due there. How can they do Devontae Adams and Rodgers together and stay productive on the defensive side of the ball with money? Yeah, think about this. A, a small market team in 2018 made Aaron Rodgers the highest-paid player in NFL history. Uh, two years later, they made David Bakhtiari the highest-paid offensive lineman yeah. in NFL history. They are now set, according to reports with Ian Rappaport, if Rodgers decides to come back, to make him again the highest-paid player in league history. And Devontae Adams wants to be the highest-paid receiver in the league, uh, which would make him the highest-paid receiver in league history. Uh, and Brian Gutekinds, by the way, has said he'd be willing to do all those things because they're worth that money. Um, here's, here's, without getting into all of the nitty-gritty details, here's how it could work. The Dak Prescott deal is a good template. Mm-hmm. If you paid Rodgers two years 95 or two years 100, let's say, Diana Rossini reported that Rodgers could get something close to $50 million per year. A two-year deal that's really two years with three of void years. And you're able to give him, let's say, $80 million guaranteed. Well, now you can spread out $80 million over really four seasons and leave that extra year if they want to restructure again in a year. Spread out that cap hit, and all of a sudden he's counting 30 on the cap okay. instead of his current 46 and a half. That saves you $15.5 million. Then... You have Devontae Adams. The best way to make this work is not on the franchise tag. Green Bay doesn't want the franchise tag. Devontae Adams doesn't want the franchise tag. He wants a long-term deal. Well, what they did with Kenny Clark, who just became the highest-paid nose tackle in league history, uh, he uh, had a base salary of basically a million dollars. But because of the way the guaranteed money works, you can spread it out across the cap. He got a nice signing bonus, and then – his, 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 he has escalators that come up later. He's going to be making, you know, I think $20 million in base in a year or two. That could happen with Devontae Adams as well when the cap explodes next season and when Aaron Rodgers may or may not be the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. You'd structure it so that in another year, you'd either have an out, he can be traded or, or retired, mm-hmm. or you restructure it again, turn his 2023 base, into signing bonus or you put roster bonuses there's so many mechanisms you can throw in there and then you spread it out again with those void years that you already have or you could even add more if you wanted to so uh it's workable there's always money in the banana stand uh Mm -hmm. and i I think the packers who are looking at this brian gudekins you you mentioned the tweet that i that i had they're looking at this as as a three-year window i think last year was year one this is year two and uh, 2022 is year two and 2023 is year three 
Peter Bukowski, Packers insider, locked on Packers, co-founder of The Leap. All right, what's the wild card here? What could give everybody else some hope that they can get Rodgers? It seems like it's Denver. Denver's a team that would be the best fit for him with the roster, but Denver would have to give up a lot to go get him on top of paying for him. So if it turns out that Rodgers is a wild card and something bizarre happens and this negotiation falls apart, what does your reporting tell you with your sources on where Rodgers could go? Well, the, the, uh, the, I think this conversation started last year with San Francisco. I think there was, there was mutual mm. interest there, and, and you rarely hear this. Kyle Shanahan, on the record, said, yeah, we call. John Lynch said, on the record, we call. And so it was, it was not a secret at the end of last season that there was discontent. And I think there were, there were a lot of people – um, based on people that I talked to in the Packers organization, that they heard some of the things that Rodgers was saying about, you know, feeling disrespected and feeling like he wasn't going to be back and, and that stuff. And they kind of just dismissed it because Aaron is, he's, he's just that guy, kind of guy. He talks, he likes to talk uh, smack. And so it, they just, just sort of dismissed it as Aaron being Aaron. He always has this chip on his shoulder. And then when it came to a head the way that it did, and, and all of a sudden it's being reported out and you're seeing it. I mean, I had someone um, within the Packers go, yeah, you know, uh, it wasn't until I saw it all sort of laid out there where I started to think, oh, yeah, he did say that. Oh, yeah, he did do this. Oh, yeah. he And then, and then all the wheels started to go. And it was like, oh, OK. So it was it was really as bad as as some of some of the outbursts made it seem like it was. It doesn't seem like it is now. So that the part of that is is moot. Um he the the Denver situation would be very appealing to him because of Nathaniel Hackett yes. and and what that what that um, represents for him um, and and it's an opportunity in the AFC uh, to that you wouldn't necessarily play Green Bay you know you you might feel like that that would be the least acrimonious way to go for a Packers quarterback who said multiple times over the, the course of his career he doesn't want to leave like Brett Favre does not want the fans to be. You know, doesn't want this acrimonious breakup. I think that if, if he's worried about that, that he could be looking at this going, okay, the way to tick off the fans the least is to go to the AFC, a team that is not a rival, you know, not Minnesota, Brett Favre, uh, but go to Denver and, and try and have that John Elway storybook ending. Um, and, and I think you have to look at what the last two years have done in the NFC and, and think it, it mattered to him. It mattered to him last year. Tom Brady goes to Tampa Bay, wins in year one. Matthew Stafford goes to L.A., wins in year one. There are going to be, I think, more teams willing to take these sorts of big swings, and I think you're going to see more quarterbacks start to say, well, why am I, why am I banging my head against the wall here when it's proven? If I go somewhere, I'm good enough. And you know, you know Aaron Rodgers thinks he's good enough. You know he thinks he's better than Matthew Stafford, and he probably thinks that he's better than Tom Brady, at least at this point in their respective careers, and probably always. Rodgers always probably thought he was better than Tom. Um, that 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 he could go at anywhere he goes, they're going to be Super Bowl contenders. Now I don't know if that's going to be the case if they have to give up Jerry Judy and all their picks and and another player to to make this all work. Um, when you have to play the Chiefs twice and the Chargers twice, and and who knows what the Raiders look like. So uh, th- that just doesn't seem like the most likely outcome. Uh, it is the juiciest outcome to be sure. Uh, but I think I think ultimately we get not cooler heads, but more logical heads where the best thing for Green Bay is for him to be back. The best thing for Rodgers, if he wants that storybook ending, is for him to be back. And so this all gets worked out and, and he does end up back there. 
Great work, Peter. Fascinated. Wanted to talk to you because Rodgers is the biggest story at the Combine and will be all week until the deal is done or there's a little bit of rift and there's a little bit of drama there. Thanks for doing this. I hope we can talk again soon. Yep, would love to. Anytime. You, you got it. Peter Bukowski, co-founder of The Leap and home of Locked on Packers. Really good to talk to him. I don't take a breath, and I go to a friend of the show, the voice of the Vegas Golden Knights, Dan Duva. Dan, you need a JT pickup now. I got to get this train moving again towards the cup. Let's go. How are you, buddy? I'm great. Good to be with you. You never stop, do you? I try not to. I try to keep busy, and then when, I, when I'm not on the air, I try to have more fun. But you have the job of a lifetime. You're having fun. This team, as I've talked to you, it feels like an all-star team but they're not healthy together at the same time. It seems like we're waiting for one player to come back. Eichel comes back, trying to get everybody on the same page. How close are we to seeing the Golden Knights eventually at full strength? I don't know that it's going to happen, and it might happen at some point, but the way the season has unfolded back in the fall and different guys are out and you start the season, you know you're not going to see Alex Tuck for months. Then the trade happens in November for Eichel. You know he's not going to play until – February at the earliest, and you didn't account for Pacioretty and Stone and Martinez, and those have been the most notable, but other 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 guys have missed time too. Carlson has missed games. White Cloud has missed games. You could go down the list of pretty much anyone. Only Braden McNabb has appeared in every single game for the Golden Knights this year, and only a couple other guys are even close to that. And when you're talking about all this in November, okay, you're, you're looking at February. Okay, they can figure things out, and you know, as they go into the crunch of the March and April schedule, they'll be good to go and they can go on a run. Well, here we are, and the Knights start March without Max Pacioretty, without Mark Stone, without Alec Martinez. They're supposed to get Robin Leonard back today, but there, of course, have been injury questions about the goalie. So now, with just two months to go in the regular season, the question is, will it ever happen? And uh, I'm not saying it can't or it won't. But you, you start to think about, gee, it, it, this team might have to figure it out while missing some essential pieces. Dan Dover joins us, the voice of the Golden Knights. Yeah, it's getting interesting here because Colorado's got 82 points and the Golden Knights have 62. That's a 20-point differential. And the teams that have jumped in front of Vegas, including the Wild and the Central, the Predators, as Vegas is now behind the Kings and the Flames. But I look at it the, the same way I looked at it, Dan, the start of the year when we talked to you they got to be healthy and peaking at the right time. Then they can beat anybody, including Colorado in a seven-game series. But the timing of the cap, how to have Stone and Eichel out there together. And I want to ask you about goaltending. What is your review on the goaltending combination this year, assuming the two key goaltenders are healthy when the time is right? The goaltending has been okay. Mm -hmm. It has not been the team's strong point. It's nice when the number one guy, uh, when the number one guy goes down, that the, the backup goaltender can do well. It, it happens to be some of the best hockey in the career of Lauren Bossois. Mm-hmm. Uh, Logan Thompson made his uh, first couple of NHL starts and got a win against San Jose on Sunday the 20th. The, the trouble is you were expecting Robin Leonard to do something more akin to what you'd seen when he first came over from the Blackhawks and even what he did last year. But, um, you know, last year when Robin missed significant time, you had Marc-Andre Fleury. And Mark went on that great run when Leonard was out with a concussion. And uh, it's, it hasn't been quite as smooth. But you just sum it up, and, and it's not all on the goaltending, but you could sum it up this way. 
The Golden Knights are 1-15 and 15 when they score fewer than three goals. Wow. And it happened the other day. I mean, the Knights had a, a lead. It was 2-1. to one. They ended up losing 3-2. to two. This is a club that found ways to build leads and hold on to them, regardless of the score. And that simply has not happened this year. Leads seem not to be near as safe as they had been. But again, when they have scored fewer than three goals, they are 1-15. and 15. What is the message of Peter DeBoer? And I'm not getting dramatic here, but just to tell this team where they need to be physically and mentally here. How tough of a job is it for a very good coach that has a team that's not at 100%? What do you think DeBoer wants to do with this coaching staff to take the heat off of them, but then again push them a little bit when they have to get going, especially after these two home games? And then when they go out on the road at Philadelphia on March 8th, they're at Philly, at Buffalo, at Pittsburgh, at Columbus, at Winnipeg. I mean, that's make a break time here in regards to peaking at the right time. How does DeBoer push all those buttons and make it happen? Right now, at least from what we can tell, it's uh, putting the right mindset with regard to uh, the position that the team is in. And I mean that in, in two ways. Number one, while they are without Pacioretty, without Stone, without Martinez, et cetera, uh, Pete has kind of looked at it at, at the glass half full, meaning – well, there were points this year when you had a bunch of guys in the lineup who were not necessarily NHL players, and that's no longer the case. Well, yeah, but Jonas Ronbjerg's going to play today, and William Carrier, who's normally a fourth liner, is on the third line. So to me, like what Pete is saying, I understand where he's coming from, but I don't think it's really accurate. This is not anywhere close to the full lineup, and uh, and I think that that you know, is, is sort of a message to the group that – here, uh, you know, there's no room for excuses, I think, is sort of a, a point that he's attempting to make, at least publicly. And then the second aspect of it is coming out of the strange month of February in which there were only eight total games. And rather than having a three-week Olympic break, they had these weird short breaks, six days, and they played two in a row. Then six days off, then three games in five days. Now the schedule is normal again, mm-hmm. even though it's – bunched up and they're going to play here three games in the next four days that may lend itself to the Knights finding a rhythm uh and again i don't know that that's an excuse for their play the last month but perhaps if they can get rolling they can actually roll rather than win a game and then sit around for four days or six days or lose a game and dwell on it for four or six days i wonder if that is uh you know something that he's pointing to to help his players kind of get that message uh, so I think, you know, they can only do so much in terms of X's and O's and put different combinations of players together. I think right now it's it's about messaging. Wrapping it up with Dan Duba, the voice of the Golden Knights, one of the best in the business. Dan, what have you learned about these fans? They've had it pretty good, right? Come in inaugural season, you go to the Stanley Cup, deep playoff runs every year, the best entertainment on-ice pregame in the history of hockey centrally located on the strip you know ticket prices now maybe some nights coming down a little bit more fans trying to get in from the other team than the opponent what is your pulse of this fan base with their frustration right now but knowing the big picture on how they can get on a cup run yeah i I was just exchanging texts with a friend of mine from back home who was uh, coming out and asking about getting tickets and you know we can usually figure something out but uh, the question that i was asked was are they still selling out every game? I said, not only that, 
the capacity is 104.2%. That is number one in the NHL. The other day, they announced 18,333, and that is just short of 1,000 more than the capacity. A lot of standing room only sections at T-Mobile Arena. So the numbers are there. Uh, I think that I've mentioned this a couple of times. There was a, I, I guess it was a coincidence. Jack Eichel's debut was the first game at T-Mobile Arena when masks were required. Mm-hmm. And I don't know which one was the more contributing factor, but it seemed louder that particular game. And then even last game, when they ended up losing three to two against Colorado, uh, there there were a lot more organic chants that uh, not prompted by the scoreboard or something that happened on the ice. It seemed that the fans who were in attendance were trying to do something to spur on the team. And, you know, we all can see what the, the complainers on, on social media, that's understandable. You know, people want to win. But I think that the, the people can make their voices heard most inside T-Mobile Arena, and they have been, um, uh, at least in the last few games, as loud as I've heard them all season. So we'll see how it goes today. You got a great gig. Uh, appreciate our teamwork here from the flagship station and what we're doing here on the radio. Look forward to seeing you soon, Dan. Great to talk to you. Always a pleasure, JT. Come by soon. You got it, Dan Duva, voice of the Vegas Golden Knights. Very fortunate to have him in this town. There's a lot of good play-by-play voices, friends of the show, friends with John Sandler at UNLV, who gave me my first start as the voice of the Vegas Golden Knights. Brent Musburger, Lincoln Kennedy, uh, Russ Langer, Fantastic. Uh, Good people in this town. We like to put the play-by-play voices on. Always nice when we can get them. It's nice when we can hear from you. 702-365-9200. It's nice to hear from you. I barely take a breath. One of these days, Bobby sat me down. One of these days, someone's going to say, JT, we're going to give you two or three co-hosts. I'm going to say, really? I could stop? I don't, I could introduce, and Bobby says, no, it'll never happen. Just you? Just me. No bits, no gimmicks, no comedy bits. Just sports, sports, sports. We don't have we don't have that luxury here. We got to go out and do it on ourselves, do it on our own. Literally, all of it, and it's me and Bobby. And we've been doing it since what year? 1997. 1997. Where were you in 1997? Me and Bobby were sitting this far away from each other, like we are today, with no screen. The only difference was masks coming in. As master coming down here in Vegas, which is a good thing. But we both love sports. We love rock music. He's a Boston fan. I'm a New York fan. And we're both behind the silver and black. Wanted to do great. When we come back, we'll wrap up the show. We'll tell you about tomorrow's show. Marcus Allen is joining us. Let me tell you how important that is. He doesn't do much. And he does it with me normally. And he's doing it because he's the grand marshal of the NASCAR event in town. So we'll have a really good conversation. I've seen Marshall a bunch from the Super Bowl to the Raider Foundation Golf Tournament. Looking forward to that conversation tomorrow exclusively on the flagship of the Raiders, Raider Nation Radio. The window has just opened for a contract extension. Certainly, he's part of our long-term plan. These uh, contracts, especially the quarterback contracts, are very complicated. Most of the big ones are done further down the road. I think uh, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen were done in the summertime. Uh, Others were done in the summertime. We've got time, um, but they're complicated. 
Bidwell, the owner of the Cardinals, on Kyler Murray's contract extension. They are. They are complicated. You want to lock up your quarterback forever if he's great. I think Kyler Murray has the ability to be great. You don't find Kyler Murray's out there. What he's able to do outside the pocket is incredible. Incredible. He's got a big arm. He can throw it as far as anybody in this league, period. He's a baseball player. His arm is a strength, and he can run. And he's got a Heisman Trophy. And he's the first quarterback ever in the history of the league going back to leather helmets through three years with 70 touchdowns and 20 on the ground. Never been done before. Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, he's a lock. Don't tell me you don't think Kyler Murray's any good. Kyler Murray's great. You don't win the Heisman Trophy and have a record in the NFL your first three seasons that no one's ever had and you're not great. So the Cardinals, he's got the Cardinals where he wants them. Cardinals got to pay him. Now we have a lockout in Major League Baseball. Incredible. Last night when I got off the air at 10 o'clock Pacific time, they were just banging out deals. They were getting this thing done, and they were just going to go home and take a nap and come home. It was a disaster today. Bob Nightingale, quote, this is 16 minutes ago on Twitter. It turned out to be an easy decision for the player reps to unanimously reject MLB's best and final offer. So for the first time since 1995, regular season games will be canceled because of a work stoppage prompted by MLB's lockout. More from Bob Nightingale. It's unknown when negotiations will resume, but the two sides are leaving Florida tomorrow with no meeting scheduled. Spring training games are canceled until further notice, with games likely wiped out for most of March. Last one. Commissioner Rob Manford has scheduled a press conference at 5 p.m. Eastern at the stadium, Roger Dean Stadium. The union will have a separate press conference later. These two sides couldn't come together on a deal. The union, the players, have officially rejected the proposal. So you know what, players? You're losing game checks. You're losing game checks, and, and you're not losing me. Because I'm a sports talk host. You're not losing me. I'll be there for the Yankees when they come back. But you screwed up everything. And how about that lady, that mom, who's 41 years old and she's trying to get ready to put her kids through college and she works spring training down in Florida, Point St. Lucie, Tampa, and she serves beer and she works four hours a night and she needs that money for groceries and she needs it to help pay for school and you shut her down. There's no sympathy for this. There's none. Don't tell me about these crying players and all of that and the shift and this and that. They can't figure out how to play baseball. Now it's in your lap. You're the fans. you got to make up your mind. Spring training games wiped out? Are you kidding me? I was just last weekend, in uh, two weekends before I was in, seeing my son in Tempe at Arizona State. And all there was were banners up for spring training. There's like six teams that set up in Tempe for spring training. The restaurants, the bars, lunch. The wives come in. The kids come in. They go swimming. They go out to dinner every night. Wiped out. Wiped out for a game. For a game. Baseball. Rob Manford needs to immediately step down as the commissioner. He can't do his job. He can't do his job. He can't get a deal done. And for the players, look, the players think they're fighting for something yet to come. What are they fighting for? They're fighting for their freedom to become free agents. That's it. Baseball's really hard. You know how hard it is to become an MLB baseball player and make it to the show? Well, these guys are fighting for the fact that once they get there, they don't want to be in jail 
for a number of years making no money until they become arbitrational eligible and they can become free agents. I support them for that. I think you should be able to make money at 19 years old, 20 years old. You shouldn't have to wait till 26. But the limits that the owners will give and the financial roof that they want to put over their house, they're billionaires. They can afford this. Remember, this is a very important point. And it's not, Mr. Foley's a different business owner than Mark Davis. Everybody's a different business owner. But a lot of these business owners in sports, their sports team isn't their primary investment. They got other things, so they need write-offs. They lose a couple of months of baseball. They lose, I don't know, $35, $40 million a month. They just write it off against their yachts, their real estate. Look at the stock market today. You know, the, these, these guys are losing money, and they have d- d- deeper pockets than the players. Bobby, interesting show today. We covered, like, a lot. And I hope everybody enjoyed it. We give you our best every day. Thanks to all of our partners. Going to go home and have some Grimaldi's. Best pizza I ever had. Oh, and yes, we have new Meetup Vegas deals. You want the hookup of your life? The way I get it from meat, burgers, chicken, meetupvegas.com, code word JT Brick. Have a great day, everybody. Hey!